Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. And we're back with the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast. This is episode 140. 140, I'm your host, Josh Shelton, friend and co-host Ryan Ray. Ryan, this is Polar Plunge Week, man. Uh, our guests, uh, our listeners are going to be listening to this tomorrow, Tuesday. It's when the show comes out. Uh, three days later, we're going to be freezing our toes off in Lake Granberry. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bad way to start off a Monday thinking about that. It's, um, you people asked for it. You've gotten it. What started out as a way to get Nate in the lake has um, evolved into a monster of itself. And so there we go. Well, I'm sure we got to get our GoPros around here and drone and all that. We'll put a video on our LinkedIn page and social media, I'm sure. But uh, can we, we live stream this? Um, Actually, I'm not sure that we can, but we probably could. But if I decide to drown Actually, you in Lake Granberry, I don't want the evidence to be there. So I just remembered that I just got a smartphone gimbal. So we can totally live stream this from my phone. We won't be live streaming. I'm telling you. <laughs> we might. We might. We might. Okay. We, we want to cut out the episode where, where Ryan ducks me in the lake an extra time for <laughs> my, my very stable genius in yeah, getting everyone yeah. to give us reviews. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, follow us on LinkedIn and we'll, you'll, you'll figure out if we're going to live stream. We will record some video, though, and, and, uh, and post it as a testimony to the, the kind of guys that we are. We, we follow through on our word. And uh, neck deep in Lake Granberry. It's coming up here just in just a few days. So, um, mm. luckily, luckily, global warming has set in, and the high is 50, I think, for 55, something like that, for Friday. So, thank you, climate change, Greta Thornburg, and Al Gore. We appreciate that. Um, and if you could go ahead and turn that temperature up to 70 by Friday, that would be even better. Yeah, everybody get out on the road, burn some extra gas for us. We yeah, need, get the emissions we going. Need some CO2. A lot of emissions. Well, Ryan, before we jump in, do we have any announcements this week? I don't think we have any other reviews. It seems like they got us. Oh, yeah, it's funny. To get funny the reviews have just stopped. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dried up. Yeah, yeah. Funny those five star reviews have dried <laughs> up just like that. Uh, same quality content. Oh, man. Uh, wow, it's, uh, that's depressing at another level. But yeah, no, no, no more five star reviews talking about how great we are. Well, or, we got to give stuff. the listeners credit, though. They're, they're just waiting with bated breath to see how good the polar plunge is. And then. If we give them a good show, they'll give us more five-star reviews. What if we don't survive? That's going to be the thing, man. Uh, where's the news going to come from? How are you going to know what's going on in the industry yeah. if, uh, if we freeze to death yeah. out there? If you don't want us to do it, then let's get to 300 reviews by Friday. There we go. <laughs> there we go. If you want to keep me and Josh, not Nate, Nate's going in. If you want to keep Josh and Ryan out of the lake, 300 five-stars by Friday, and then we'll, we'll, we'll stay dry. That seems fair. Because maybe people didn't mean for me and you to get in, Josh. Maybe they didn't mean for that. They meant they meant for Nate, and they just all voted because they're so excited that they didn't realize it. So, three hundred by Friday, I think that that'd be enough, huh? Do you yeah. see what I have to deal with, listeners? <laughs> well, we should freeze the assets and get some uh, some bots. Oh, somebody's assets going to be frozen this weekend. Yeah. All right. So our good friend David Blackman, actually, you know, come to think of, it, we hadn't had him on in a little while. He he wrote an article for Forbes this morning: the oil and gas situations, abundance and growth meet limitations. And uh, he talks a little bit about Exxon's uh, Exxon Mobil refined the first cargo of oil from Guyana, and I got a, another article for that here in just a second. But um, Blackman looks at a couple a couple of items, uh, including that, to kind of give you an overview of what the state of oil is, or oil and gas rather, uh, in the in the U.S. And because of the situation that that the industries in, there's going to be much less funding uh, moving forward. And Blackman doesn't see this as a short-term deal. He sees this as for years to come, even if oil prices were to go up, it seems that the the amount of money and capital that's going to be invested is going to be uh, much more leery uh, moving forward because because of the situation they found themselves in now. I mean, that is obviously connected to the commodity prices. But uh, it seems that there's been a lesson learned that m- is going to create a little bit of hesitancy uh, moving forward. Yeah, yeah. The first thing I, I thought of, I, I took a look at the Guyana articles. I thought that was all offshore production, which uh, maybe I misread the headlines last year. But I thought they just found it. So the so I wonder if it's shallow or, or what the deal is, because I was surprised that they're already 
getting that that to market because those are usually longer lead projects. I think go back and, and look at some of that. I know, I know we have another piece about it in a minute, but a couple things that stuck out to me about this, Josh, was first off, New Mexico, our great friends in New Mexico, um, went from 2.2 billion in 2018 to over 3.1 billion in revenue from New Mexico, according to the Mexico Oil and Gas Association, um, and that is from oil and gas production um, re- related revenue. And so, I, you know. A, when we see these headlines um, coming from the state of Mexico, this is a nice way to send it over to them and say, hey, guys, you know, uh, maybe you don't need an extra billion dollars, but it's nice. It's nice to have an extra billion just, just come into your lap. So, you know, that, that's that's an important thing. And as industry folks, we should always tout um, when we are help, helping um, wealth be created because uh, – Obviously, that's how we live. It's about being wealthy, and we're compared to people in, in human history. We're the wealthiest people in the world uh, in, in human history. So, there's that. The other thing I thought um, was interesting was if you kind of sit back and you look at some of the things he puts here. There's three little points he summarizes. Uh, Henry Hub. This is from Blackman's quote. Henry Hub price fell. Uh, for natural gas below the crucial two dollars level in January 17, and has remained there since. Prices this low could put producers with gas-heavy portfolios in a critical financial condition. That's an interesting thing to think about because one of the things that we have to balance when you talk about oil and gas is the Permian produces so much natural gas that it puts this pressure on these natural gas producers that's not really, really you know, so if you're over in the Marcellus and you're producing or, or, or Haynesville or the, or, uh, the Barnett RIP, you know, part of the reason that you're struggling with prices is because of uh, the oil production. So as oil production theoretically drops this year, um, natural gas production will drop um, from, the, from what's going on in the Permian. How does that impact prices? And I think that's that's, um, that's kind of the thing to watch. And then on the flip side, if you believe some of the narratives that it's going to go to 70 really quick or, you know, maybe some of the crazier narratives that's going to go to 90, you know, th- that would seem to really hurt the natural gas producers as well as it would keep the, the price um, down because you would in- you would uh, you would increase the amount of natural gas coming out of the Permian. So um, falling below a $2 level is obviously, is obviously not very good. And the other thing is he said this is according to – Reported by Reuters, the U.S. Energy Information Administration expects the growth in, in February for shale oil and natural gas output to be the slowest in over a year. So, what does that mean when you start thinking about it? Well, we, we talk about the rig counts dropping. Um, we talk about the ducks coming online. Um, so, if you're sitting there saying that uh, the growth is going to slow down, I'm assuming that's talking about you know production growth, right? So, if production growth begins to slow then does that mean that we've already hit the kind of over the hump with the with the with the ducks and stuff like that is that i mean february would be kind of an early time time marker to hit that it would seem mm-hmm. yeah that's going to be something to see um I, I the ducks has been a fascinating topic for us i, I really would like to to follow up on that yeah, when do we have don't we have ted hall come back on nate When's yeah we have ted hall coming back on next month next to month talk with us about the ducks okay so this will be interesting because this is talking about february so next month we can get ted on to hear where he's thinking that we're out but so the growth is going to be the slowest for over a year that mean it's going to you know necessarily decline um year over the year but it's going the growth is going to slow down so where does that put us at in this narrative of you know rick's falling Ducks coming online, production slowing down. Um, so that's going to be interesting to watch because if it does start to, if production, and I don't think production is going to fall in February, but if production does start to fall in February, then you, you know, that, that obviously would impact all of these things. So um, it's, inter- it's an interesting time. And, uh, you know, I know we're talking about OPEC here in a minute, but you kind of look at it and it feels like the market isn't really sure where things are going to go. And if you look at the, the, you know, the, the outbreak with the virus in China and I saw a thing this morning, the markets are tumbling on fear of the, the virus. Usually it feels like the market overreacts to things that it's scared of. And so I would say right now, when you see the market reacting to the, the potential pandemic of the virus, you know, spreading across the world and killing all these people, uh, that seems to be, you know, I just sit in financial advice, but if I was going to buy the stock market, now's the time to buy because you feel like you're going to get that nice little dip and then come back up here in a week or two and everything levels out. So um, I'm more 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 interested in the fundamentals than I am the, the potential uh, downfall because of a potential pandemic that doesn't seem to be um, as wide, going to be as widespread as, is the uh, they were talking about it, at least as early as Friday? 
You know, mentioning OPEC, uh, there's an article at oilprice.com that mentions that uh, OPEC is mulling the extension of oil production cuts through the end of 2020. So right now we were expecting the cuts to last until March and then maybe to the mid middle of the year. Uh, so there are talks that they may actually uh, extend those cuts all the way to the end of 2020. I think if that were to happen, we would have, uh, I think, a good reason to believe that oil prices would increase, um, when I say significant, that's kind of relative, but I think they would go up third, fourth quarter this year. We should expect um, much stronger prices. Uh, so that would be good news for us, I think. Well, you know, what's interesting is, is Anas, a few weeks ago, or whenever he came on, two or three weeks ago, whatever it was, you know, he seemed to indicate that he felt like the, the Saudis would be interested in helping keeping Trump in, uh, not because it's Trump, just because they like keeping the Republicans in. So that would mean that they would keep production higher to keep prices lower, which is kind of the antithesis of what this article seems to be saying. Hmm. And so... Gas prices, you mean? No, for, for oil prices. Well, if they keep the prices lower that lowers the gas prices is that the the angle no 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 so the, the point would be is that opec if opec if opec cuts production or continues to cut production and the u.s shell producers cut oil production then eventually the oil prices would go up which would make gasoline prices and things like that eventually climb he was saying that historically speaking the saudis have wanted to keep the republican president in because that's good for their business so if you look at where prices need to be, or if they're at $80 a barrel, it's good for guys like me and you and folks in this podcast. But for the average consumer, they're looking at their gasoline going, oh my gosh, my gasoline prices is high. Um, so if I understand what Anas was saying is that the Saudis are incentivized to make sure that the prices stay kind of where they are, because he said they're going to stay kind of you know where they were a few weeks ago, you know, 55 to 60 kind of range. So this article is saying, hey, they're talking, about, they're talking about extended cuts through the end of 2020. And I think that's going to be – if analysis theory is right, it's going to be dependent on where the price is as we come closer to the election. Now, if it looks like Trump's going to win the landslide, maybe that they don't do anything. But if you kind of think about the implications of what he's saying, if you get to June and, you know, the polls are really close and it looks like, um, you know, the Democrats, whoever the, the, the Democrat candidate is, will you know, have a shot of overtaking Trump, then the Saudis might be incentivized to keep, you know, raise production or keep production at current levels or whatever it might be to ensure that the pro- the gasoline prices, you know, which comes from oil, obviously, don't get out of hand to make sure that the economy stays, you know, quote-unquote in check and then uh, insure, helps ensure a, a Trump second term. Now, now, a, a speaker won't like that. speaker won't like that at all. No, speaker, yeah, prophet of doom, he will not appreciate that. I'm expecting those speaker texts. I haven't gotten one from him in a while. Um, I talked to him, I think, once this year, but I'm expecting... Um, the speaking prophet of doom. This is my prophet. My, my prophecy was about speaking. As the the primary season comes into full swing, the the speaker text to get more and more um, colorful <laughs> in their prophecy. So speaker, we love you. Look forward to hearing from you soon. Especially if Warren gets in with her fracking band. Yeah, speaker. Well, I don't know what you're going to do. And hey, real quick, uh, I'll send this to Nate. We put in the show notes. There was a great podcast from the New York Times the other day that was in western Pennsylvania asking folks about who they'd vote for on the Democrat side and the the drilling ban and stuff like that we talked about you can kind of hear from their perspective um, these are folks who would typically vote Democrat how they're torn about voting for Elizabeth Warren or uh, Bernie and the other candidates because of some of that talk so there are folks you know here in Texas we kind of go that'd be the stupidest thing I've ever heard of but for those folks it actually has um, you know real economic impact that you know the coal jobs are gone and now they're, they got natural gas drilling jobs and if those jobs go away what do they do so it was interesting so I'll send it to Nate and we'll uh, put that in the show notes to listen to so I think everybody is familiar with some of the uh, the fires going on in Australia I, I forget how many acres had burned it was uh, it was pretty pretty impressive uh, numbers that man, just staggering really um, but there was an article that came out earlier this year January the 6th where Australia um, takes the crown as world's top LNG exporter. Chevron is one of the uh, one of the big reasons for that. They have an LNG plant that they have um, that they they have in Australia, and they gave actually some money to uh, bring some relief to some of these fires. Um, and interesting enough, Ryan, there was um, a lot of outrage that Chevron would give money because. Uh, in the minds of a lot of the environmentalists, Chevron is the main cause behind some of these fires. 
So um, I, I was at a, a deal last last week, and something was mentioned that, that uh, the guy called ESG, which is Environmental Social Governance, and in a lot of these these uh, investments, ESG uh, is basically the the optics that these companies have, uh, and so from the environmental standpoint, a lot of these. Uh, a lot of these companies are mindful of how they're going to be treated in the stock market or in the, in the public based on how they position themselves toward environmental issues. So it's just interesting to see that a company like Chevron, who's giving money um, to help with these forest, uh, forest fires and who is providing energy to these countries where there's high levels of poverty and they're, they're trying to bring LNG to, to help some of these people, are being basically crucified because of what they're what they're doing in these countries because of uh, some of these environmental issues so it's um, it's gonna be interesting to see yeah it's it's you know it's it's a tough spot and I know we had some folks that listen to us in Australia would love to hear um, you know how bad it, it, I'd say I'd love to hear how bad it is just not obviously I'd love to hear it, but I'm curious to hear how bad it is because obviously as you know when you watch the news you can only get a uh, snapshot. So, what do we think some of the potential impacts long term are this? And I heard some folks the other day talking about their fields might be impacted um, down there. So, yeah. And then you know, it's it's kind of one of those things. What, what do you what do you um, what do you do? Let's say that you were the you know I heard someone say this one time, Josh. Um, let's say that you were uh, a kingpin drug dealer. Okay, and you made billions of dollars as a kingpin drug dealer, and then you quit that business and you became on the straight and narrow, right? You you're opening up a, you know, a baseball card shop or I don't know, gas station or, or whatever. Insert regular business here. If you then take that billion dollars and you start funding, you know, orphanages and hospitals and charity events, are you doing the right thing or not? And because you're using the drug money essentially to to fund these these humanitarian efforts, and so this isn't a one to one. But it is raising an interesting question. It's like, well, okay, if you do believe that Chevron is somewhat responsible for these fires and they are giving money to help mitigate the cost and get people back on their feet, you know, you're saying, well, well, what else? What do you want them to do with the money? That's kind of a kind of a hard spot for someone to be in. Yeah. Uh, last thing there on uh, some of the ESG, there's uh, the uh, biggest investor in the world. I don't know if that's the right term. It's a company called BlackRock. They own, uh, they have ownership in Pioneer, Concho, Marathon, and many, many other companies. Uh, they are pushing for a reduction in the carbon footprint as a response to this ESG. Uh, I guess um, the question, you know, is what does that mean exactly? But just seeing some of the environmental pushes being made by some of these. Um, Public companies, publicly traded companies, is uh, it's going to be it's going to be something to watch. I think that as more of these companies are moving over here to the Permian, um, and and more attention is being is being drawn from the environmental group, the more it's going to infect, uh, affect us and and how how much we have to deal with it. I, I think for the most part we've been pretty immune to it. For I don't know if immune is the right word, but we're not Colorado, so. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but all these companies moving here, all the attention coming here, we're going to see some of these sentiments start to affect how we how we do business more and more moving forward. And uh, it's just going to be uh, one of the things to companies are going to be looking at uh, in terms of investments and, and stuff moving forward. A couple of things, uh, Ryan, for the Texas Roundup before our guest comes on. We have uh, a couple of things. Uh, London Petroleum aims to become carbon neutral by 2030. This is kind of fitting in that same narrative. Um, I think Shell was planning to be carbon neutral by 2050, being basically a completely renewable company, like electric. Um, So that sentiment's out there. ExxonMobil grows Guyana oil fine estimates to more than eight BBOE. So um, this company said on January 27th that uh, they made the 16th discovery on the block, hitting about 29 meters of high-quality oil-bearing sandstone reservoir. So, man, this is just like a gold mine down there, man. It's unbelievable. Exxon's just finding stuff left and right. So um, th- this is going to be something to watch, the, the, the prices of, of oil and, in general, the um, the state of offshore is, is seeming to be in a, from a long-term standpoint, to be in, in a good place. 
in Cana finalizes move to U.S. as Oventive. Uh, they completed a series of reorganization transactions on January 24th and, among other things, establishes its corporate domicile in the U.S. under a new moniker. So Oventive is uh, going to be the new name for, for the U.S. I don't know how long it will take for that to take place. Um, so I think, you know, Drilling Info became Inveris, and it, it took a while for that to actually stick. Right, but you also got to remember that they're publicly traded, so you're going to have some stock exchange stuff that's going to go on and and, um, and issues like that, and they'll be tied up into it. So, yeah, it might, you know, Inver- uh, Drilling Info, Inveris, whatever they are, you know, they're, they're probably held, so it's a little bit... It, you do have legal issues you have to deal with, but it's a little bit different than when you're publicly traded. Just some of the notifications and stock ticker and all the stuff involved with that. Uh, Anova LNG and Enbridge Inc. pipeline agreement. So Anova signed a precedent agreement with Valley Crossing Pipeline on January 27, 22nd, providing transportation for Anova's LNG natural gas requirements at its 6.5 MTPA LNG facility in Brownsville, Texas. Yeah, and Josh, we have our sales tip. We've going through. We've got uh, a couple more. Uh, a couple, well, I say a couple more, four or five more. So we'll link to this in the show notes. It's TexasOilGasPodcast dot com slash sales dash tips. Um, so here's the next one. This is again from an operational engineer at a large e large cap EMP company. Bring data. Bring a salesy pam. Bringing a salesy pamphlet and a branded Yeti cup along to expecting to work will not work anymore. If you land a meeting, show up prepared. Everyone hates death by PowerPoint, so keep it short. But everyone will love an appendix with 30 backup slides that only come up out of out in response to specific questions. And so, um, so there it is. And you can get all of those. We'll hit them one by one. I think we got uh, looking here. One, two, three, four more to do. So four more to do. But the, we're gonna leave them up on the website. So if you're curious what it feels like from the other side table, and that was one of the more fascinating conversations we had. Josh was uh, was on that. I know we have a, a guest coming on in a minute, but I'll kind of reiterate again. One of the things that that was said in that meeting was talking about the bidding process, and I think we told the story on here, but it's worth repeating um, that this particular person was saying that you know they get bids in and they're they're not done, they're they're, they're way overpriced, or they're not uh, they don't actually you know address the things that are inside the bid, and, and so they were talking about you know why you know how frustrating that is from, from their standpoint, and and so mm-hmm. I can understand that. And one of the things I kind of uh, push back on, I said, well, you know, from our side is that we get bids all the time and we're not sure they're actually bids. You know, <laughs> we're not sure if we're actually going to put together a bid that that's going to be looked at and evaluated and held to a standard, or if it's just a, just a, um, a, um, a pricing mechanism to make sure that they're keeping their, their current v- vendor honest or whatever. And so, you know, it was a good conversation and learned a lot and heard from that side of the table that you don't get to hear very often. And I would just say that, you know, if, if it's possible, if you're on the EMP side or the midstream side uh, and you can sit down with the vendors and have those type of conversations, that's really helpful understanding some of their frustrations that he was expressing uh, that day. And then from our side, there are certain things that they didn't realize that we were expressing, you know, like, oh, this is why well, we can't speak to, we weren't involved with any of the we didn't work for this company or anything, so we weren't involved with any of the situations, but we are just kind of saying, well, this is possible, this is possible. And it was kind of, I think, helpful from that side of the table to hear this is why vendors act the way they do, potentially, in some scenarios. And um, because, you know, if you're over there at, you know, uh, you know Chesapeake, we'll pick on Chesapeake because <laughs> they're struggling. But if you work at Chesapeake, you're not concerned with, you know, your, what your competitors are doing. You're concerned with what you're doing, and so you're not thinking about maybe the vendor who has to serve, you know, four or five masters. So those are conversations that we think that probably should happen if possible. So if you're on that side of the table, folks, you're on the company man side, then be sure to sit down with your vendors, tell them the problems that you're having, not necessarily with them, but with, um, you know, uh, in, in general, as far as bringing in new vendors and uh, going through that process. Awesome. Well, we got one uh, one last thing for the roundup. Uh, this is from Sergio Chapa. Oh, gosh. <laughs> ExxonMobil aims to keep dominant status in Texas shale, so XTO. Uh, filed for 15 drilling permits with the Railroad Commission for 15 horizontal wells in the Permian Basin. You know, and, and then once again, he's got the, the Barnett in here. Again, pointing out that there are no horizontal drill permits that's filed. Just, that's just Sergio, mean. you should just be honest at some point and say, Ryan, your your shale sucks, Ryan, and it's all your fault. Wow. That would be aggressive. much more straightforward. That's aggressive. That's aggressive. Much manlier of That's you. aggressive. That's, that's, well, I mean, you know, it's like... Do people need to know that there's no update in the Barnett Shell? 
Yeah, just like take why, it why, out. Why, yeah, why don't you just take it out? And then people will start asking. And then maybe, but there's, but we don't need you to pile on every every week, every week. We we get, it's a little bit redundant when you're just piling on us about it. And uh, you know, listen, we know, we know the gas is gas is cheap, man. So. Uh, you know, and you know, I I don't think Sergio offered to come cover the polar plunge. He didn't. You know, that's that's real news in the Barnett. If he wants to talk about news in the Barnett, that's news. But yeah, you know, so there you go, Sergio. The Sergio. number one most attended oil and gas polar plunge of January 2020 is happening in the Barnett. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what more do you want from us, Sergio? Speaking of that, Josh, why why wouldn't I guess? Let's, we have a few folks to thank. So we've been getting in some numbers here. Um, about where we kind of fit into the larger podcast world. And so we got some folks around the world that listen to the show. So let's just give them a shout out. So Australia, Canada, the UK and Northern Ireland, Russia, Sweden. Uh, and I think we have a few other countries. Let me see if I can. Oh, Japan was one. Um, Finland, I believe, was one. I'm trying to pull it all up here. So anyways, so folks from around the world who listen to this show, we do appreciate it. It is... Um, kind of uh, interesting for us what, what value that we're bringing to you so we'd love for you to reach out and and tell us and then in a side note Ellen and Ellen show when I was uh, energy week is the number one rated show in Kazakhstan so yeah I saw that so I saw that there, there we go so we are uh, it's a, I don't know if they listen to the show or not but they do hello to our friends in Kazakhstan uh, hello to our friends in Kazakhstan so <laughs> All right, today we have a guest, Tommy Wetgrove. He's an experienced second-generation landman and founder of Mineral People, LLC. Uh, he's got a working interest partner in some oil and gas wells as well. So, uh, Tommy, we've been looking forward to get you on for, for some time. Um, glad, to, glad to finally have you on today, man. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, uh, Tommy, we were a couple of things we wanted to, to talk about. As a landman, you, you have an interesting perspective on... Uh, on the industry and how it's developed over, say, the last 10 years or so. And so I uh, was interested to get you on, talk about a, a, couple of, a couple of things in different areas, different shell plays, and uh, just kind of get some perspective that you have on where the industry has been uh, for the last 10, 15 years, where it's at now, and where you think it's going. So, um, so yeah, so, uh, yeah, so just wanted to kind of kick things off and, and give us kind of a little background about you, and um, and we'll jump into it. All right. Well, um, so yeah, you know, we're seeing we're seeing kind of an interesting time, and I wanted to start off. You know, let's look back a few years to the plays that we have seen in Texas. You know, we had the Barnett, the Eagle Ford, and you know uh, the Haynesville as well. Uh, you know, in the northern parts, and you know what we've seen is you kind of have, I don't know what I would, in my opinion, you, you have a repeat of kind of the same, the same things. Um, I'm not saying all the plays are the same. I'm saying that, you know, you see some of the same trends that, that start out throughout different plays. And I think there's a reason obviously for that. So let me, let's back up. Let's start out. Okay. I'll just start out, you know, uh, in the Barnett, you know, you saw that, that big giant Barnett boom, uh, you know, years ago, I guess when, when I was real active in it, it was, I want to say I was there, you know, did a lot of work in that area from, uh, 2005 to about 2009. And, um, you know, at that time, what, you know, it was, it was booming when I, I'll never forget getting to Fort Worth and seeing just rigs just running. I mean, you could see them everywhere all over around the city limit. You know, it was just really booming. And I remember that's one of the first times I had seen, as probably a lot of people, because that was also kind of a unique play in the sense that you had, uh, you know, drilling occurring like within the city limits. And it was kind of a first time deal. And there was a lot of also um, entries and barriers, I guess, so to speak. Uh, I remember there were some lawsuits and there was some uh, legislation about, you know, drilling within city limits and, um I know there was some some issues with it. I know it caused some, uh, you know, a lot of legal problems, and I know that it got kind of ugly in certain areas, um, as far as that goes. But anyway, so you know, one of the things I remember experiencing there was uh, give you an example. I mean, you know, about how lease bonuses got so high so fast, and 
how, you know, no one could, it was almost like you couldn't keep up with them. Uh, example, you know, when I guess, you know, you can say this now because it's, it's, it's no longer here nor there, but at the time, I remember the first lease I ever purchased there. I paid $600 an acre. That's what the client was paying within, I would say not even two months, that same bonus, uh, had jumped up to like $3,000 an acre. And then obviously it went up much from there. Um, I don't remember exactly what the, the dollars were as far as when I exited the play, but I remember thinking it was up $25,000 an acre and, and higher. Um, and so you see the increases are just phenomenal in lease bonuses. That being said, what also started to happen is when you would drill wells there uh, around the same time, I want to say the cost, um, I remember kind of doing some research and being involved in some of the, you know, the AFEs that I saw a well to be drilled and completed, I guess, in the earlier stages was, you know, the, the AFEs that I was, you know, privy to was about uh, two and a half, you know, two to two and a half million dollars. You know, once that, that obviously changed, you know, uh, your drilling costs almost started that they'd started creeping up just like your lease bonuses. And so, you know, it caused it caused some issues for the play as it was developed. That being said, let's move to the Eagle Ford. Um, you know, same same thing. Uh, you the play starts off, it's booming. Everybody's trying to get leasehold. Uh, prices are soaring. Um, you know, very similar to the Barnett in the fact that it jumps. You know, three times the bonus prices jump three or four times in a matter of months because. People, companies are trying to compete for acreage and they just keep raising the ante a little bit. And so it starts out again. You have this phenomenal increase in lease bonus. And therefore, I'm not saying that this, is, this causes the higher drilling cost, but you see the same thing. As more drilling starts happening, your wells become more expensive. Your drilling costs start to go up and they start to increase. And so what does that do to the overall scheme? of the play itself, you know, you've got to raise more money. You've got to spend more money and it creates this little bubble of cost. And therefore, what do you do? And I think that that is some of, as we've seen, these plays start so, you know, hot, everybody wants to be there and everybody's buying acreage and starting to drill wells. And then you have this, once everything starts to get so high, it, you know, the bubble kind of bursts in a way. And then you see like, you know, today, um, some of those plays are, I mean, people are still drilling wells there, but they're not near the amount of, you know, hype and, and, uh, and that's maybe right the right term, but you know, you don't have everyone running out to jump into the Barnett shell or Eagleford shell right now, like you did when the plays were just, you know, really hot. Um, you still have some operators that drill wells there and they're still productive and there's still some good zones there, but you're not seeing, you know, the, uh, frenzy, I would guess, uh, of those plays like you did. And I think that, you know, in my opinion, a lot of things causes that obviously, you know, I talked a little bit about the drilling costs and lease bonus costs, how they get incrementally higher and higher and higher. And that also starts to create, you know, a, um, barrier, to enter those plays, you know, where you're, you're only going to see people with bigger dollars. It's going to push out some of those smaller, you know, middle range independents because they realize they can't afford to buy those leases at that price and they can't afford to drill wells at that price. So, you know, that you kind of look at, I'll use the Eagle for it. A lot of smaller operators end up selling out to bigger operators. And number one, it's probably because I'm sure they are offered, you know, a very um, good amount of money for their acreage. But also it's because I think in certain cases, especially some of the smaller ones, it's because they can't, they can no longer operate at that level with that kind of, you know, cash being just filtered into those wells and the development. So you have to take on a partner or sell out to a larger company that can afford to drill wells like that. Um, so I think that, uh, and obviously, you know, with the Barnett and the Eagle Ford, you saw I wanted to touch on this too. Commodity prices, of course, change as time goes on. Um, case in point, you know, 2014, oil dropped from, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I know it, it almost dropped like by half. It was over $100 a barrel within 
a month, two months, I want to say it was, you know, it's 60, $50. Um, that obviously caused an extreme, uh, I would say almost panic. You know, people started getting laid off. Companies started just trying to, you know, make ends meet because when your commodity price drops almost half in a series of months, that's a quite a difference in your revenue stream. So, um, and you know, you have to really look at your your drilling operations much closer at that point. So, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm a little curious uh, about um, in the Eagleford and Haynesville and the Barnett. Uh, if, if they were having some of the parent-child uh, well issues. I know that might not be your, your area, but you mentioned the decline rates. And uh, I, I just wonder, the cost of drilling these wells went up. I wonder if, if production began to decline as well, a- along with all the other tumultuous events that were going on. Uh, because it's definitely a big thing right now in the Permian. The parent-child well, I think, is, is uh, one, of the, one of the key issues for a lot of these EMP companies. Yes. I would agree with you there. Um, I'm not sure if you saw it as much as you're seeing it in the Permian, but it definitely, I would agree, is is a factor um, in some of the production that I have seen. Um, you you do have that definitely that parent child um, child issue, and it's you know how many parents can you really drill is the question. You know that uh, to your point. So I think that uh, that definitely causes a problem. And as much as you want those children wells to be as good as the parents, they are not. And uh, I think that how do you, I so I guess the question is like you're saying, and kind of maybe moving forward and going to the Permian and some of these other plays is you figure out a way where you can technology wise or, you know, some other way you, you have to figure out how to make those wells produce, Closer to the parent well. Well, so, uh, uh, so um, one of the things you mentioned earlier was uh, cost to get into the plays, and you know, if you worked at the Barnett or the Haynesville back in their their heyday, obviously, you know, some of the numbers that you that you mentioned and you, you would have heard back then were were just crazy and astronomical. Um, but it's been a while since the heyday, and Sergio Ciampa seems to. Re- repeatedly, weekly, pound on the poor old Barnett about how no one's drilling here. Uh, obviously, prices aren't very good here, uh, good in, for natural gas plays like the Barnett or the Haynesville. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's never coming back, obviously, but it also doesn't mean it's coming back soon. The prices are, are, aren't in the favor. But what are you hearing just from a, a standpoint of folks who are maybe wanting to um, you know, sell their position or looking to raise capital uh, in the Barnett play or the Haynesville play, uh, how much interest or how much this kind of scuttlebutt is, is around those two areas specifically? Um, I have heard that the Barnett, uh, there are some, some companies that are trying to, some small NP companies. Well, and uh, let me uh, kind of back up a little bit. Uh, I know if you look at the, I would say, northeastern part of the Barnett, which you would call the oilier part, uh, EOG was very successful in drilling some very good oil wells in that area and some other operators as well. So you do have, uh, they found the oil window of the Barnett. And so, you know, that's definitely helped. But also you're seeing some companies that are able to, because prices are now, you know, at a normal level perhaps, and they're not having to pay so much, they're still able to drill some wells that they can, you know, operate and make some revenue on. It's just, um, you know, you're not hearing as much about it, I guess, uh, to your point, you know, because it's not, it's not the hottest thing there is and no one's really talking about it. But I feel that, um, and I have heard there are some small operators that are still able to drill some wells in the Barnett and in the Haynesville, and they're still able to make some money because their costs have come down, you know, so much to get into the, the area and maybe even rework some of those existing wells. And I have heard that, that um, I, I forget where it was. There was actually an article I saw a few days ago about they were talking about re-entry of wells and they specifically listed the Barnett and they feel that at some point, a lot of those wells will be re-entered and that, you know, it will be a very uh, lucrative situation for somebody because it, it's not going to take much stimulation to bring those wells back on, you know, really get them to flow like they did in the original where some of those wells are flowing, you know, from what I remember, 10 to 20 million cubic feet a day. 
so uh, in, in the Permian, uh, we saw 2016, 2017, a lot of private equity money uh, began to enter into the space. Um, and a lots, of, lots of startups, smaller companies that were looking to go in, get up acreage, uh, establish some, some rigs and wells, and then flip. Um, that caused uh, the market to kind of go in a certain direction. Uh, now we're seeing uh, the market no longer operating under those principles. Uh, that, that, that flip and sale model is basically dead. Um, so there, there's been lots of changes over the last two to three years. What are your thoughts on the Permian? And, uh, you know, you saw it boom like the other ones. You saw the prices begin to increase, and then you saw uh, smaller players not being able to thrive. Um, but in this case, you have a lot of PE-backed companies that are also unable to sell, and many, uh, I question whether they can operate um, efficiently uh, in between uh, in between now and when they actually sell. So if, if, they, if they don't sell, they have to figure out how to operate at a certain level without going bankrupt. Uh, they have to increase their efficiencies, keep their production levels steady. Um, and I don't know that many of them were really built for that. Uh, you're absolutely correct. Um, from, you know, from what I know and what I hear and what I have seen is they are having to figure out how to drill more efficient wells because they have no option. Like you said, they, they're, they put a lot of money into their positions and um, now they realize that they have to do something with it because like you said, they cannot exit or maybe their, their exit strategy did not work as they thought it would. And so now they have no choice but to develop it. And so I think you're going to see um, some really good innovation come out of that because they're going to, you know, they realize they have an asset and now they have to figure out the best way to produce it, um, not just exit and sell out, like you said, and just sell their position and get their money back and, you know, move forward. Um, that being said, I think where the Permian is, is I guess the easiest way I would describe it is the honeymoon period is over. You know, everyone was, was wanting to come to the dance and now everyone's in the dance or at the dance, let's say. And, they are, you know, realizing that now we're going to have to do something. And once again, I would say that what's going to solve those issues, uh, let me I kind of back up case in point is, you know, I, I read an article about, um, I think, believe it was in the Houston Chronicle. Uh, sorry, I don't know the date, but it was recent, probably in the next, uh, within the last week about the amount of gas coming out of the Permian Basin and that, um, for example, some of the areas are much gassier than they thought. And at this point, there being no market, they're having to flare it and they're having to figure out, you know, there's no infrastructure to get it out, to sell it, even to sell it. And so it's become an issue. And so I think that basically is going to force these operators to figure out a way to use the gas or, you know, uh, do something else with it other than, you know, nobody wants to just keep flaring gas. And also there's, you know, a lot of environmental issues around that, um, about the pollutants and so forth. And I've heard, you know, a lot about that, that a lot of people are very unhappy. And there's a lot of, um, I guess, combating of, you know, flaring gas and, and drilling wells because of the pollution that's involved. So when you look at kind of where we're at with things, um, you know, the market is, you know, at least if you look at today, everyone's kind of concerned about the virus. And it, it seems to respond to a lot of things other than uh, fundamentals. Fundamentals obviously um, are, are a part of it. But it, it seems right now, um, last year, the narrative was, well, the trade deal with China, fear of economic growth. Now we're, we're seeing uh, the virus and how many barrels that we take off the, the market. And that obviously does does play into what happens at the more transactional level. But um, you know, you, from someone who's kind of seen these things come and go, the, the rise of the Permian, uh, the rise of the Haynesville, the fall of the Haynesville, uh, now we're in the, the Permian's kind of the, the thing. How much do you think the news impacts um, – Folks that are in the mineral space and they're wanting to move to, they're wanting to get in or get out. Do you think that um, that they're following the, the the kind of the world news, if you will, to kind of make sure they, if it's time to get in, or are they are they more kind of following fundamentals to decide when they want to enter and when they want to exit the market? 
I think you have uh, at this point, I think that only, um, I guess, as I would say, the honey, since the honeymoon period's over, I think you're seeing the, um, where the more, I guess, for lack of a better term, savvy people that are in the Barnett, uh, excuse me, uh, the Permian, gosh, um, you know, they, they're the ones that, that are going to stay and they're going to thrive. Um, I do believe that, in my opinion, the ones that show up too late are going to have a very hard time and that maybe are following news that is, like you said, just, just thrown out there. And it's not really, I'm not saying that it's, uh, I'm not talking about fake news to be clear here, uh, nothing like that. But, you know, I think you really need to look at it from the industry's perspective, not from what you hear about, you know, the sky is falling necessarily, or, you know, I'm not, I'm not a financial analyst by any means, but I think that definitely when you see some of these negative headlines about the Permian's going away, you know, everything's gone, oil prices are falling. Um, a lot of these companies are, you know, people aren't wanting to, to put, um, people are worried about their investment in some of these companies, but are they going to be able to withstand the downside? And I guess that being said is, um, I don't think there's any reason to panic. I think that, um, of course, prices are not so good and um, it's a tough time in the industry for a lot of companies and a lot of people. But that being said, um, I want to kind of move towards, you know, future. And I wanted to, there's an article and I do have the date and the actual, um, you know, uh, title for this one. This is uh, out of the Houston Chronicle. It's dated, uh, January 20th, 2020, and the title is Parsley Energy Doubles Down on Permian Basin. And so basically the article kind of summarized, it basically just says, you know, they, they purchased uh, Jagged Peak Energy and that, you know, they're going to be spending quite a bit of money to develop this position and that even with the lower prices, they're going to be able to produce and drill wells in the Permian. And... Um, it also cites, you know, some other companies and some of these other plays we talked about that, you know, um, Endeavor is going to drill some wells um, in Martin and Midland counties. And, um, you know, uh, that some other wells are going to be drilled in the uh, Eagle Ford. And so I think what basically is going to save things, uh, maybe that's not the right term, but people, what what has always saved these positions is innovation and tenacity, in my opinion. And I think you're going to see that. And I think that uh, it'll be interesting to see that going forward. That being said, uh, I'll cite a second article. And this is, um, let's see here. This was from, um, I believe, the San Antonio News. Um, and it talks about basically BP is going to expand its midstream infrastructure in the Delaware Basin. And that, you know, they purchased uh, BHP Bilton and that basically with this, um, you know, acquisition, they're going to really ramp up their, their drilling over the next five years. And so even with the prices being what they are. So I think that uh, necessarily the sky is not falling. It's just a matter of going forward with those, you know, those things of the innovation that's nasty and that we will as an industry there will be some hard times, but I think in the end, uh, you'll see what you've seen before through through those those things. And then I, I want to uh, end that article about uh, where it talks about BP. Um, one of the uh, I, I'm sorry, I was looking for the the name of the person that I, I, I don't want to quote them, but anyway. He says, I believe his last name is Burton. Um, he's the CEO or, uh, sorry, my notes here. I, I, in this article, I'm not, I'm not seeing his first name. But anyway, the quote is this. This is his quote. This is not mine. Um, he says that, you know, they're looking for people that demonstrate value that are key to the future of the success. And what, what that is, is innovation, motivation, trust, and teamwork. And I think you're, you're really going to start to see that more and more with these companies that are trying to, and they will develop the Permian as they go forward. Well, it reminds me of, uh, of Exxon. I saw some, uh, some news out. Um, well, I say news. I, I heard somebody uh, speaking at something I was at recently, 
And they mentioned that Exxon uh, are planning to go up to 70 rigs in the Permian. And uh, they have a pipeline from Wink to Webster. Uh, and they uh, have either have finished building or in the process of building a refinery that's capable of taking uh, the, the crude that's being produced in the Permian and refine it because there, there are limitations on refiner, refineries here in the, in the states that can handle that, that's, uh, that sort of crude. So, uh, so you got people like Exxon that are kind of building an end-to-end solution. Um, they're using stuff like cube developments to increase efficiencies. They, they, they have it from upstream all the way downstream. So uh, they have the ability to, to really watch their margins in a way that's pretty unique. And, and companies like, like that, um, I mean, they're going to be fine. I mean, they, they can handle it. The smaller companies, not so sure. Uh, with prices, where, they're at, where they are or any lower, probably will have a much harder time, at least in the Permian. Now, you, you move other places, there may be other opportunities, um, which is something we've always said that, you know, the Permian's not, not for everyone, especially as it gets more and more competitive. Well, with that, uh, Tommy, I think uh, I think that that wraps us up for today, man. Is anything uh, anything else for uh, you want to hit on? Uh, tell us who you are. Um, if anybody wants to get in contact with you, where can they find you? Oh, sure. Um, my office um, I out of Dallas, Texas, where I, I reside, uh, Energy Square, and uh, my email address is Tommy at mineralpeople.com. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn for those, if anyone wants to find me, uh, just Tommy Wettergrove, um, should be easy to find. And, uh, you know, we, uh, I'm always, uh, trying to really be kind of more, uh, energy, uh, based, you know, I, I do, uh, various things, you know, primarily land work, but, uh, you know, also mineral people was formed to, uh, market and acquire minerals throughout the state of Texas. So, uh, we, we help companies try and locate minerals. We help them try to sell minerals and or buy minerals. And, uh, you know, we buy some as well. So anyway, um, I really thank you all for having me on the show. Uh, I enjoyed it. Right. Awesome, man. Well, appreciate you coming on. Thanks for coming on, bud. Well, thanks again to Tommy for coming on the show today. I uh, really appreciate him uh, coming on. With that, Ryan, I think, uh, I think that wraps us up, man. We uh, just... Gotta go freeze Friday. Yeah, so. gonna go freeze Friday. So that's it. Uh, thanks, listeners, for tuning in. And if you do get to 300 five star views by Friday, Josh and I will sit back with a, a nice cold beverage and watch Nate go Don't in. But, but other, do than that, it. other than that, we will be in the lake Granberry Friday. Until next time, keep climbing.